Uh, turn to someone next to you. We're going to talk about panic today. Turn to someone next to you or think to yourself about the last time you had some panic in your life. What was the cause of the panic that you experienced? And uh, relate that story to someone next to you. I heard some snickers. I'm grateful for the panic-inducing stories that end with laughter. Want to hear mine, my most recent? I uh, was slated to be at a a wedding on Friday. Uh, Our our, uh, tech director, David Prince, and his wife, Tanya, married off uh, their oldest son, Jacob, to an amazing young lady named Carly. They both grew up at our church. It was just a blast to hang out. Uh, with their family and our extended church family and, and just celebrate uh, the union of these two young people. Uh, we had the invitation. I wasn't doing the wedding. Travis Lowe did the wedding. I was so excited to go to a wedding I wasn't doing. Uh, and so we put the invitation on the fridge. Anybody else do that with the important dates? Yeah, we put the invitation up on the fridge, walked past it every morning as we got our coffee, saw their names, saw the date, uh, but uh, failed to read the further print right? Uh, And here's what I mean by that. Friday night wedding, it's got to start at like six, right? Everybody's got to get there from work. Nope. The princess decided to have it at four. And I found out at 325. (laughs) Anybody been there? Panic call my wife, Eleanor. She's at work. Babe, I thought for sure this thing was at six, but it's starting in 35 minutes. And we both kind of go chicken little on this thing, right? And she's like, grab this, grab that, bring it to me, I'll change in the truck, blah, 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 or whatever. And, and I'm like, great. And so I hop in the shower, jump in the car. It only took me like five, ten minutes. Now I'm trying to get to Echo on Parsons down 60 at 3.35 on a Friday afternoon. Anybody want to guess how that went? <laughs> Poorly, I'm telling you, bad. And so here's what I find out when I'm panicked. I make poor decisions. Does anybody else do that? I'm like, there's certainly a better way to go, so I juke, I pull a Yui, I turn by Dunkin' Donuts, I head up to Victoria so I can cut past Brandon High School, which lets out at 3.45 or whatever, right? So now I'm behind every bus in Hillsborough County. I finally get to the stoplight there in front of Brandon High School, and I'm like, there's got to be a way through this neighborhood. There isn't. It dumped me all the way out up on Windhorst, and I forgot to mention this. In our panic, Eleanor said, you know what? To save time, I'll start walking. (laughs) So she leaves her business there at Clay and Parsons and starts walking uh, east on Parsons, or excuse me, on Clay, in a steady mist as we, (laughs) in high heels, as we, uh, you know, try to, you know, make up time and get to this wedding. Uh, At 4.10... I don't know if you're keeping score there, but it was like half an hour for me to get to Sefner, Valrico, and Clay, where my wife had walked from Parsons in the rain to sit in the truck. It was 4.10 at the time that we left uh, uh, Brandon to get to a wedding in Plant City Yep, at 4 o'clock. We didn't make it. I say laugh because after uh, not long enough uh, marriage, but uh, 31 plus years of marriage, uh, we've learned to do that. Anybody else figured that out in life where you have no control? Just giggle about it and then tell a story to your church on the Sunday after, right? (laughs) But unfortunately, not all panic stories uh, end with laughter. 
Uh, a lot of the panic in life is uh, legitimate. Now, but the Bible tells us how to handle panic, right? Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, be anxious for how much? Nothing, right? So we're not supposed to stay in panic. We're, we're meant to pray in panic and, and, uh, and make our requests known. Uh, but panic is a part of life because we live in a broken world. And in a broken world, things break. Things are beyond our control. And when things in, inevitably, invariably spin out, uh, we're just trying to catch up. And, and that's what we're going to see uh, pretty much from now on. Uh, through the, the rest of the book of 1 Samuel until it kind of resolves towards the end. We're, we're going to see David, one of the characters, uh, one of the kings, the better king, good king, uh, be chased by the bad king, Saul, his predecessor. Uh, he's, his intent, Saul's intent is, is murder. And just to kind of put this all in, in, in its you know, frame, um, David has married Saul's daughter. He's best friends with Saul's son. He's done absolutely nothing to deserve Saul's ire, except that he's a rival, and Saul uh, is dead set on him being dead. And so David's panicked, understandably. And we're not going to be exhaustive in our treatment of panic, but in our story today, which is pretty long, we're just going to be mostly reading the Bible together. I hope that's okay with you. I'll kind of bring about some ideas at the end, but we're just going to read the story. And as the story unfolds, uh, we're going to see three, at least uh, three things uh, that are useful, prescribed to us from Scripture when, when panic situations come. Now, I, it's almost Thanksgiving, so I thought we'd do some motions. Everybody stand up. No groaning. No groaning. Stand up with me. We're going to learn some motions. Here we go. Um, when panic sets in and life breaks, everybody look out over the horizon with me. Find and then put your arms around someone else. The right people. Everybody say that. Find the right people. We're going to learn that today. If you're going to go through something, go through it with the right people. And then as you're going through it with the right people, everybody do this in front of you. For, it's like Plato. Form and then the right plan. That's the plan. Everybody see the plan? This is your plan. This is my plan. So the first one is find, say it with me, find the right people and then form the right plan. And then the last thing that's kind of undergirding both of those is that we fall back. Everybody kind of tilt back. And it's kind of weird. You get back on your heels. I'm like, no, it's too far. But fall back, fall back on your faith. Put your hand over your heart. Uh, in the God, and nod with me, in the God who can. Yes, sir. So one more time, we fall back on the faith, uh, or on our faith in the God who can. One more time, we find the right people, we form the right, and then we fall back on your faith in the, oh, in the God who can. I'm not even doing it right. But I did make it a rhyme. Did everybody see the rhyme there? Dr. Seuss got nothing on your pastor. Here we go. No, here we go. We're going to do it really fast. Ready? One more time. Find the right people. Form the right plan. Fall back on your faith in the God who can. Oh, come on. Who's having fun at church? Here comes the story. First, we have the panic expressed. Not the Chinese food place, that's Panda Express. I got it in, Matt, we joked in the morning. Anyway, uh, but a Panic Express. David, uh, if you weren't here last week, David has uh, 
had a, had a spear thrown at him for the third time. Saul tries to pin him to the wall, okay? Uh, he escapes to his house. Saul's daughter, uh, his wife, Michael, helps him escape his own home in the middle of the night. Uh, he runs uh, three miles uh, to the east to a place called Rama, Rama Lama Ding Dong, uh, and, and hangs out with the prophet Samuel who anointed him king of Israel. Uh, Saul sends three sets of messengers, messengers see assassins, to grab David up. Each, each one of them is uh, uh, intercepted by God himself. The spirit of God overwhelms each set of messengers to the point where they uh, are unable to do what they were sent to do, and they just start prophesying in the name of God, right? Saul says, if you want done something right or something done right, uh, go do it yourself. He uh, heads out to, uh, to get David himself, and God intercepts him and shows the king of Israel who the king of kings is, and uh, he's thwarted once again. Uh, this was where we find David as he flees from Naoth in Ramah and comes and finds Jonathan somehow, he says this to his friend, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? I picture David saying this, you know, panting as to, after running and, and pulling, you know, Jonathan aside. Jonathan's like, Dave, what's up? And, and David doesn't even, suspenses with the pleasantries, he just shoots right into this thing. What is going on? What is your father's problem? I slayed a giant. I've served in his army. I played my harp so he could calm down and get some rest. I married your, your sister. I'm family. And he can't stop throwing spears my way. Jonathan is uh, not immediately picking up what David is putting down. He says to him, far from it, Dave. You're not going to die. Dad's not going to kill you. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. That's ancient Hebrew for dad and I are like this. We're tight. He says, why should my father hide this from me? This cannot be. It is not so. Now, the last time we saw Jonathan, he was actually having a, a, a discussion with his father, Saul, in defense of David. Uh, he he, he you know, basically confronted his dad. Why are you so you know, angry with your son-in-law? He's done nothing but good to you. And if you remember that story a couple chapters ago, or a chapter ago, um, Saul says, you're right. He relents. David comes back, plays his harp for a little bit more. And then what does uh, Saul do right after that? Like two verses later, after saying, yeah, Dave's good, he's picking up his spear, <laughs> you know, and he's chucking at him again. Um, so, uh, apparently, Jonathan is not privy to this. The last, you know, part of his piece in the story is that he and dad talked and we were good. And dad doesn't do anything except that he tells me, well, D David says, well, that's not 100% true. Look at the next verse. David uh, vows, swears, promises, Jonathan, it's as I say. He says, your father's, he knows well that I found favor in your eyes, that we're tight. And he thinks, I can't let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. And in between the lines there, lest he tips David off. Can't be having Jonathan, you know, uh, feeding my intent uh, to his brother-in-law. Uh, but truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, as far as your father is concerned, there is but a step between me and death. That's a sobering statement, right? Like we're one breath away from not breathing anymore. We're one step away from life not being anymore. He's, 
is probably maybe uh, alluding to the fact that it was this close, that spear, and if I hadn't have done this, it would have hit me. Uh, but certainly, David uh, senses, knows that his life is in danger and he needs help. So Jonathan says to David, oh man, I had no idea. Whatever you say then, I will do. So the panic's been expressed, so a plan needs to be initiated. David says to Jonathan, well listen, here's what we're gonna do. Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. So David says to Jonathan, hey, here's what we're gonna do. The new moon feast, which is commanded of Israel in Numbers 28. At the beginning of every month, the new moon, you will sit down and basically have like, you know, 12 mini Thanksgivings. Our Thanksgiving's coming up Thursday. They did 12 of them at the beginning of every month. They would give thanks to God. It was a religious feast. And the, the, the new moon festival that uh, was about to happen was going to happen in the king's quarters, in the king's palace, and David was meant to be there. He says, I'm not going. I'm going to hang out in the field uh, until the third day. It was a two-day feast. There would be two dinners the first night, the second night, and the feast would end on the third day. He says, on the third day, I'm going to hang out there until that evening. And then he says this, if Saul at that dinner, or at one of those dinners, says, good, David's not here, that's totally fine. David says, then we will know that it will be well with me, your servant. But if your dad is angry at my absence, then we will know that harm is determined by him for me. Then uh, he kind of says something that's so fascinating. He says, therefore, in light of this plan or in light of my predicament, therefore, here's what I need from you, John. Deal kindly with me, David, your servant. Love that he calls himself that. Even though he's the anointed you know, prince of God in Israel, he still seeks to serve the current king and his son. Uh, be kind with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord. He's referring to you know, a, a passage, a chapter ago, where Jonathan and David meet for the first time. And it's very truncated and doesn't go into a lot of detail, but Jonathan is so impressed with David and his victory over Goliath and just his character and demeanor and just who he is that he immediately takes off his robe. It's a sign of Jonathan accepting the fact that David will be king and he won't. He takes off his princely robes and he gives them to David. He takes off his sword and his bow and removes his armor. He gives them the whole shooting match, the whole shebang, and says, David, this is my way of saying to you, I know that God has chosen you and not me. They make a covenant together. And he's referring to that here as he asks, David asks Jonathan to deal kindly with him. He says this, but if there's guilt in me, like if I've done something to deserve this, and I truly need or deserve to die, then I would rather you, friend, kill me yourself than you take me to your father and let him do it for us. He's basically saying, hey man, stand by me, deal kindly with me, whether I'm in the right or I'm in the wrong. Be my, be my friend, have my back in this predicament. Let me draw you back to the beginning of this verse where it says in English, therefore, deal kindly. These are the Hebrew words. Uh, asa, he said. Everybody say, asa, he said. Asa is the word for do or make or deal as it's translated here. He said is one of the most important words in our Old Testament scripture. It's the uh, Hebrew word uh, translated here as kindly but most often it's translated as steadfast love. Show me steadfast love. 
Give me steadfast love, Jonathan. Therefore, in light of everything that we're going through and in, in hopes you know, that this plan works out, whatever the outcome is, I need you to stand by me in the kind of love that God stands by us in. This uh, word has said appears almost 250 times in the Old Testament canon. It uh, is uh, used almost always of God for people and his uh, devotion to us despite our rejection of him. It starts in the garden, right? The first two uh, humans have one rule. They break it. Way to go, right? God rightly uh, punishes them, banishes them, but he doesn't end them. Why? Because in all of Scripture it reminds us that God is for us, not against us. His love, his steadfast love doesn't overlook our sin. He's still just, but in his grace and mercy he gives us a second chance. Anybody grateful for that? Read your Old Testaments. It comes up again and again and again. Why? Because us humans are great at (laughs) defying the one true God. Unfortunately, that's us. In sin, we, we, we wander, we rebel. Now, probably, uh, in, in my estimation, most famously, it happens. It, remarkably, right after God has sent Moses in Exodus to emancipate the children of Israel from slavery there, uh, gets them across the Red Sea, they're, they're now on their way to this promised land that was given to their forefather Abraham, and Moses has gone up on a mountain to receive from God the commands or the, the, the plan for life that he would give his, his chosen people, Israel, uh, to function in. And while Moses is up on the hill, does anybody remember what the kids down at the, in the valley did? Led by his brother Aaron, they all decided to melt down the jewelry that they had escaped Egypt with, all the gold, and they formed for themselves a cow. A golden calf. Still makes me giggle every time I read the story. I'm like, seriously, you're going to worship a cow over the God that split a sea for you? Great idea, Israel. God is understandably furious. So is Moses. He busts the tablets up that had the ten on them, right? But it's just, look, it's just two chapters later that God, in a conversation with Moses, as he's about to restore Israel Uh, back to his good graces, says these things about himself. Look what it says in uh, Exodus chapter 34. It says that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed this, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, and there it is, in hesed, in steadfast love and faithfulness, He repeats only one thing from that list, the keeper of steadfast love for thousands. Most English translations translate that Hebrew phrase as keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. Where have we sung that before? Like just a minute ago, right? When we sang about the blessing of God on you you and your children and your children's children for a thousand generations. That lyric is born or born of or borrowed from God's description of himself. I am the giver of hesed to an unworthy people. My love can be counted on for a thousand generations. Let me pull out of this story from 3,000 years ago and, and hang out with you guys here in Brandon for a second. Everybody with me? Um, when life breaks as it has broken for David, um, we need 
has said love from the people that God provides us in life. Anybody grateful for those times in your life when things fell apart and panic set in and God sent you the brothers and sisters that you've uh, you know, been given in your family or been given in your church family to, to be your support and your wisdom and to be the shoulder that you cry on and the hug that you, you know, rest in as you try to sort out what's next in life. That's how we are designed to work. We are the vessels, the, the pipes that God's love flows through and to those situations so that his love can be tangibly sensed through us. We all need people who love like this. And, and conversely, we all need to be people who have the capacity to love like this when others need us in the situations that bring them panic in life. Are you that kind of person? Can you be counted on? Have you been counted on? I'm looking out of the sea of faces, knowing many of you, and knowing that is true of you. But when you think about yourself being an image bearer of God, when you get to show love, when you receive has said love, we are acting as chips off the old block, resembling the Father who loves us in this way. Jonathan affirms that he has David's uh, back here in the next verse. Jonathan said this, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Of course I'd tell you. Of course I remember our covenant. Of course I understand what has said means and me dealing kindly with you. And of course I will grant you that in this time of need. David says to Jonathan, verse 10, well, then great, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? <laughs> so you're going to be at this dinner. I'm not going to be there. How are we going to find out what happened there um, if, if I'm not there to see it for myself? So um, Jonathan, in the absence of an iPhone and texting abilities, uh, is going to come up with a plan to help them communicate uh, in the wake of whatever happens in this uh, you know, idea that they have. So Jonathan says to David in verse 11, come let us go out into the field. So they both went out in the field. It doesn't tell us why. I think it's because they were probably having a conversation that people were starting to pick up on. Hey, that's David. Saul's looking for him. Hey, that's Jonathan. That's Saul's son. And, and, and so just like we see in the movies, hey, let's continue this conversation, but somewhere else so that we aren't being you know, seen. They head out to this field, and a, a pledge is made immediately by Jonathan once they get there. Jonathan says to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, let him be my witness. I swear on God's uh, holy name that when I have sounded out my father, that is, when I've heard or seen what he's about to do, about this time tomorrow or the third day, whenever it happens, behold, if he is well disposed towards you, David, then shall I not send and disclose this to you? Answer, I shall. But should it please my father to do you harm? The Lord do so to me, Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. What's he just said there? Hey, man, if, if, if dad says that you're done and you're dead and that he has all these nasty ways that he's going to kill you, may that and worse be done to me if I fail to let you know that that's his plan. He's serious about holding this covenant. Of course I'll tell you either way. And then he finishes with this, a blessing. He says, may the Lord uh, be with you as he has been with my father. And some of you are like, wait a minute, Saul? Saul's never been with God. Of course he has been with God. He had been anointed by uh, God's prophet Samuel, chosen by God uh, to lead. He had been used by God in great victories against uh, Israel's enemies, the Philistines. He had, 
He had had some good moments, right? It's only been recently that he's kind of been rejected by the Father. So the same blessing that God gives to Saul, his son Jonathan hopes to be put upon David. But then it shifts. From this pledge comes a request, a promise is asked of David. In light of you seeking for me to give you his said, to deal kindly with you, I would ask the same of you. Look what it says. If I am still alive, verse 14, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And verse 15, do not cut off your steadfast love. There it is again, has said twice. Don't cut your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. He asks David to promise him that no harm would come to him if he's still alive and no harm would come to his family in the event of what? Well, who's watched a movie where a new king takes the throne and all of the descendants of the former deposed king, what happens to them? They're done. Why? Because you don't want anybody with a claim to the throne coming up in there and making trouble for the new guy. And so new kings got rid of old kings and old kings' sons and descendants. And Jonathan, even though he knows David and loves David, he's like, hey, man, listen, there's going to be lots of people who are going to come and be your advisors and say, David, you've got to kill everybody who's got Saul's last name. You've got to get rid of all of them because they're a threat to your rule. And Jonathan says, I know that's the norm, but I ask for your mercy. See, he's forecasting, looking to the future and asking for steadfast love in the event that that future comes about. Jonathan uh, continues, makes a covenant with the house of the David and says this, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. I'm team David, I'm not team dad. And then in verse 17, it tells us that Jonathan made David swear a promise, again, by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. When you go through uh, trouble in life, find the right people. And as you anticipate future trouble in life, form the right plan. Have them both rooted in this unconditional um, God-type love that will see you through even the the greatest challenges uh, that we all face in life. So as the story goes, the plan's finalized. It says that Jonathan says to him, tomorrow's the new moon, just like we talked about. You will be missed because your seat will be empty at the feast. All right, so on the third day, I want you to go down uh, quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand. We don't know exactly where that was or what the matter was that he's referring to, but David knew, Jonathan knew, there's a heap of stones that I need you to go stand by. Remain beside that stone heap. And when you're there hiding, once I've found out what you know, dad's gonna do, I'm gonna come out there and I'm gonna shoot three arrows. The ancient form of texting. I'm, I'm gonna take a bow and I'm gonna shoot three arrows. And, and as, I, uh, as if I was shooting at some particular target, but I won't be, I'll just be shooting them so that I can send the kid who's in charge of retrieving arrows. Because arrows, we're not just shooting arrows all over Israel and not picking them up, right? So go get my arrows, kid. And when I speak to that kid, If I say to them, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then that's your sign that you're to come back because everything's fine, you're no longer in danger. But if I say to the student, the youth, whatever, uh, go and look for the arrows, they're beyond you, keep going, keep going, then that's my sign to you that you should go because things aren't okay, you gotta get out of here. Uh, But know this, as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. I love that picture 
like in this steadfast love that God wants us to have, uh, how does he you know, bring that about in relationships with humans? He's in the middle of it. He's the glue. He's the cream in that spiritual Oreo cookie, right? He's keeping it together, and it's his love through us to each other that will see us through whatever comes in life. Uh, so let's find out how it goes. Who knows? Anybody remember this one? So it says that David hid himself in the field, and the new moon came, and the king sat down to eat his food, and the king, in verse 25, sat in his, his seat. When I go home for my Thanksgiving dinner uh, here at lunch, I'm sitting in my chair. Dad's anybody got a chair in your house? That's where I sit. You can sit wherever you want, but that's where I sit. Saul had a chair at his table. It's probably right by the spear rack, apparently, right? Uh, he's hanging out at his chair, and it says that across from him was Jonathan, his son, and Abner sat maybe to his right as his like, uh, chief general and, and, and advisor. And then David, his son-in-law, also a general in the Israeli army, would be at that table. Yet Saul did not say anything that first day when David was not there because he thought to himself, something has happened to David. He is not clean, surely he is not clean. Uh, people had to shower before they came to dinner, apparently. Uh, hope you do. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that, that's not what he's referring to. It's not just general cleanliness. It's ceremonial cleanliness. Uh, in the, uh, uh, the, the, the Jewish faith, all kinds of cleansings were required for the people involved in religious rites or ceremonies to participate. You would have to be bathed before you went into the temple. You would have to make sure that you had not become unceremoniously or ceremoniously unclean, sorry, uh, by touching a, a dead animal or a, or a dead person. That's why in the story of the Good Samaritan, who remembers that story from the New Testament, Jesus tells this parable about a Good Samaritan uh, who is the only one to stop for a man who's been robbed on the way down from Jerusalem. Two others, um, basically a priest and a, and a priest's assistant, come, acro come acro across this man, but they won't stop. And it wasn't just because they were in a hurry or they couldn't be bothered. It was almost certainly because they were so concerned for their own cleanliness, having just come from the temple. They didn't want to touch someone who appeared to be dead and become unclean themselves. It was a pain to have to go through, and so they passed by on the other side. So perhaps that's what's going on with Dave here. It's what Saul thinks, even though it's not what's going on. But on the second day... He would have had plenty of time to get clean. And so this is when things goes, go off. On the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was still empty. And so Saul says to Jonathan, his son, hey, and look at how he phrases it. Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Won't even say his name. It's like a Harry Potter novel, the name that now shall not be spoken, right? Some of you read them. I didn't. But anyway, uh, yeah, he's, he's so done with David, he won't even utter his name. Jonathan quickly uh, responds and says, David <laughs> earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He's into the ruse, the agreed upon screen story. He says, uh, uh, this is what David said to me, let me go. For our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So, so just like everybody else who's doing a new, new moon festival, David's family, led by Jesse, uh, is, is having their own feast. And David came to me, Dad, and said, can I go uh, and, and eat with my family on this one? Uh, my brother has commanded it. Wait a minute. Is that what David told Jonathan to say? 
I don't remember David saying anything to Jonathan about having his brother, you know, ask him to do this. This is just a quick aside saying that lies will lead to more lies. Has anybody ever noticed that in life? So, uh, Michael did it last week and lying to her father about David's whereabouts. And, 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 and her brother, Jonathan, is doing it this week and brought uh, Eliab, David's old, bro, oldest brother, into the story. Regardless, um, it says that, uh, um, so now if you have found favor, if I have found, Jonathan says this all, if I've found favor in your eyes, let me get away. Ah, that's not what it says. I'm getting tired. Sorry, kids. So now, David speaking to Jonathan, if I've found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. Is everybody with me? You probably were already there. I just wasn't. Okay. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Anybody? Show of hands. How many people think Saul's going to be okay with this? Yeah, you're right. He's mad at least uh, uh, for three reasons. First of all, David's not there. He can't kill him. Uh. Secondly, David's not there, and he's not there because he has purportedly, reportedly, uh, chosen to honor his older brother more than honor the king of Israel, which makes the king of Israel kind of angry that he's being second-classed here, right? And then finally... He went to the prince of Israel for permission instead of coming to the king of Israel, who would have certainly said, no, you're not going to your brother's house. You're sitting at my table, dork, because I need to kill you. Ah, he wouldn't have said it that way, but you get my point, right? And now Jonathan is complicit in the escape of David. Saul's had it. Both of his kids are thwarting his plans to end David's life. And here's what he says. A prince is profaned. Here it comes. Everybody brace yourselves. It's getting kind of PG-13 up in here. He says in anger against Jonathan, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse, so won't say his name, have you, you've chosen the son of Jesse over uh, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. We need to unpack some Hebrew here. He, uh, most scholars I read this week agree that these were idioms of the day, just like they are for us. You son of a, and sorry to lead you there, but that's, that's what he's basically doing. He's dragging his wife into this, poor girl, right? And calling her a, a perverse and rebellious woman, but what's he really doing? You are a worthless man. And coming from, you know, a, a, a worthless family, which is kind of weird, he's the dad. But uh, um, he says, you're a son of a perverse or rebellious woman, woman and, and you're doing this to the shame of your mother's nakedness. It's, it's almost as if he's saying, you're the son of a prostitute. And we've got our own saying for that, right? But he's, he is, listen, not excusing him, this is completely out of bounds. But he is so fraught with anger. He's calling his own son a son of a. He's, he's just going to go completely off the rails here. He says this. He says, um, for as long as the son of Jesse, still won't say his name, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, if you are not picking up what I am saying, son, let me make it very clear to you. I want you to send and bring him to me so that I can kill your brother-in-law and friend. He surely will die. <laughs> Jonathan is, I think, just really in disbelief. The last time they had to talk about David, David was back. 
And now the true heart of his father is revealed. And he stands up. Don't miss this. Jonathan's a grown man. He's a warrior. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. He's coming across the table as dad. What are you doing? He says uh, these things to him. He says, why should, you put, why should David be put to death? What has he done to you? What is going on here? And Saul reaches over to the spear rack. I'm sure there was one there, right? And he picks up a spear and hurls a spear with the intent of killing his own son. And this is how Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death, and apparently him too. And so he rose from the table in fierce anger. Uh, it means he wanted to retaliate, probably, but knew that wouldn't add anything to the story. And so he leaves in a huff. He refuses to eat at the feast, and he's grieved for David because his father had disgraced David himself and himself as a king. He understood that the kingdom is lost because my father is lost. Well, the plan is uh, executed, and I'm not going to take the time to read it all. If you want to, you can read it as I finish, but... uh, just as Jonathan and David had agreed. The next day, uh, David's hanging out by that heap of stones. Jonathan shoots the text arrows, right? Um, As he's communicating to the kid to go get him, he says, yeah, further, go away further. And that's the sign for David to know, I gotta get out of Dodge. Before they leave, though, the Bible tells us that they have one last goodbye. These two brothers-in-law, these friends covenanted to each other, these, these two princes, princes, anyway, uh, these two princes uh, meet up for this last time. It tells us that they weep. It's okay to cry, guys. It tells us that they kiss, and some of you are like, kiss? That's weird. No, all kinds of cultures. The guys kiss each other on the cheek all the time. I remember walking, this is kind of an aside, but bonus material. I remember walking uh, next to one of my uh, African friends. They don't kiss each other on the cheek over there, but grown men will hold hands and walk places as a sign of friendship and affection. So I'm 28 years old on my first trip to Africa, and my host, Moses, comes up to me and just grabs my hand, and I'm like, all right, here we go. I don't know what this is, but... Uh... And he wouldn't let go, you know? And so I'm... I'm standing there holding his hand, meeting people. Hi, yeah, I'm from Africa. Or excuse me, I'm from America. <laughs> Apparently I'm from Africa. But I'm from America, and, and I'm holding this guy's hand. He won't let me go. And so it's like 10 minutes. We finally get back to the bus, and that's the first time he lets my hand go. And I sit down to my new, you know, next to my new friend, and I'm like, hey, Moses, I'm guessing that's okay over here. He's like, what? Yeah, holding hands. Oh, yeah. It just shows that we're friends. I'm proud to be associated with you. I said, well, that's not what that means in my country, right? <laughs> and, uh, and he says, what does it mean? And I told him, he's like, ah! Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just telling you. All right. <laughs> but it's totally okay for men to show affection. They did. And in verse 42, it says this, then Jonathan says to David, go in peace. It's kind of in our vernacular, hey, man, we're good. Even though this isn't, our covenant will last. Our has said love for each other. It's in place. We're good. Go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring. For how long? Forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. And they don't meet again until the very end. And spoiler alert, it's going to be to the very end of Jonathan's life, essentially. 
Because he'll die in a battle as his father dies in the battle, and that's how David takes the throne. Three things. We talked about it at the beginning. Everybody do it with me. When you go through the panic stuff of life, find the right people. David found Jonathan in the moments that he needed. The immediate struggles that he faced, he found his ally. And the steadfast love of his friend saw him through. Jonathan foresaw the trouble that was ahead. And he said, hey, brother, make me a promise. Give me some of that steadfast love that God gives to those who can't do for themselves. Spare me, spare my children. By the way, spoiler alert, David does exactly that in 2 Samuel chapter 9. The kid's name is Mephibosheth. Name your next child that one. Uh, but Mephibosheth is a descendant, the son of, da- of Saul, or excuse me, son of Jonathan, and uh, he is spared by David. Find the right people. Then form, do it with me, form the right plan. Uh, they, they created this process in which they could determine what, you know, was happening behind the scenes, and they acted accordingly. I'm so grateful that you and I, in finding the right people, can be led by the Spirit of God. In forming the right plan, we can be led by the Spirit of God. When David uh, grows older and he uh, uh, has a son named Solomon, Solomon tells his kids in Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings and all of your ways. Acknowledge him and he'll make your paths straight. You want a plan? Go to the guy or the God who has the good ones. And follow him in all things. The last thing I want to share with you as you head out for your Thanksgiving is this. You need to fall back on the faith that you have in the God who can, right? And and, and in life, you and I, uh, if we have Jesus in our lives, get to look to him first for what we lack. And there's some of you out here who haven't chosen him yet. And love you, but I don't get it. Like Alan and I were talking the other night about Uh, some of the people who are near and dear to us in life who are choosing Jesus not. And sure, we're desperate for, you know, them to know and follow hard after the one true God and his son, Jesus. But it's not just because it's what we believe. It's because it's what we know to be best. In my life as a Christ follower, I have the confidence that in whatever I face, Jesus is my first line of defense and truly the only line that I need. I'm grateful that he uses those around me, the right people, to, to often you know, minister to my needs. But me and Jesus is enough for whatever I face. And certainly, can we all agree and celebrate in the fact that Jesus holds our future He's got tomorrow, he's got next week, next month, next year, and all the years after that until I go see him or he comes back to get us. And he will meet us in those moments where panic ensues. And he will deliver us from evil and grant us his grace. May not work out like we thought, may not be what we preferred, but he will never fail us. It's just not in its nature to do. Jesus says to his friends right before he's about to be crucified and eventually ascend into heaven, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in my Father and believe in me. I've got you. So as you're finding the right people and forming the right plan, don't forget that Jesus stands with you in all of this and he is more than enough. And so now, 
Let's sing his blessing over each other, shall we, as we close? Stand with us as we sing. for your steadfast love, for dealing with us kindly when life breaks and panic sets in. Uh, God, we uh, are grateful to you uh, and uh, seek to have faith in you for what we lack. Help us to fall back on what you give, knowing that you can do all things. God, as we... uh, Seek solution, help us to form the right plans and to do it with the right people. Thanks for giving us to each other. Make us a church that loves you and loves each other and loves those who aren't a part of us yet. Help us to be your solution in so many people's lives, problems. Um, Grant us your grace to not just find the right people, but to be the right people uh, for those around us to receive your love. Give us a great Thanksgiving as we head out to that. I pray that as we sit around our tables and reflect on the things that you've been gracious to give us, our chief thanks would be to just you for your steadfast love. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Thanks for sending him, for giving us life through him. May we walk in life with him. It's in his name that we pray. Everybody said, amen. God bless you.